Well, as we enter into the third week of Lent, a saying of Benjamin Franklin came to mind. Do not put off to tomorrow what you can do today. Do not put off to tomorrow what you can do today. The collect of the day today on the third week of Lent actually focuses on two things. I don't know whether you noticed it or not, um, but take a look with me at the scripture insert, or it's also in your order of service. We pray two things to the Lord. First, there's this assertion that our hearts are restless until they rest in Him, our Heavenly Father. But then we pray, look with compassion upon the heartfelt desires of your servants and purify our disordered affections that we may behold your eternal glory in the face of Christ Jesus. And you'll notice that there's causality there in that statement. Purify our disorders affections that we may behold your eternal glory in the face of Christ Jesus. So the scripture texts today, not surprisingly, go right along with this prayer with two themes. Number one, they focus on our need to be purified by repentance, to be made holy in our repentance. And number two, that God's love for us is more than we can imagine and that he is on our side in our quest for holiness. So as we continue here in Lent, the prayer book, the lectionary, the colics, the readings, everything is calling us to remember once again God's long-suffering and enduring love for us and also that his love calls us to change. And finally, of course, as we started in Ash Wednesday, being reminded that our time is limited. Our time is limited. So God's love is long-suffering, but our time is limited. Last week, we considered the costliness of salvation, if you were with us. We considered the cost of God sending his son, Jesus Christ, to die for us, for our sins in Jerusalem. And the cost to us also, that costliness to us, of living a lifestyle of repentance. That it's not easy to turn away from the things that we naturally and sinfully want to do and to embrace God's purpose for our lives in holiness and obedience with his grace. In today's gospel, our Lord Jesus gives us an image, doesn't he? And it's the image of the fig tree. Please look with me at the gospel passage, either in your Bibles or in the scripture insert. Particularly, jump down to verse 6 of Luke chapter 13. And he, that is Jesus, told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. What's this parable about? We have to look at the immediate statement that precedes it to see, right? And maybe if you were scratching your head as Father Joshua read it to us, um, you're not alone because it's a current events story found in the Gospel of Luke, right? 
that you probably don't have any reference for, and that's okay. Right? That's, that's why you have me, right, to dig around in some of those old texts and look at this stuff. So what's going on at the beginning of the gospel passage? Well, we do get very clearly what happened, right? There were some present at that very time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. So what's that all about? Well, verse 1 intentionally uses the word mixed, talking about the Galileans whose blood had mixed with their sacrifices. And what had happened here, most scholars think, is that there was this rivalry between Herod the king and Pontius Pilate of the creed, right? Pontius Pilate being the Roman governor, Herod being the native king, but who was actually close to Caesar. That, their relationship's actually really interesting. But these two men didn't like one another until later on when they gang up on Jesus. And so one of the things that they used to do was pester one another over jurisdictional rights. And so in this particular time, Herod, whose territory the temple is in, was just going about his business keeping the peace, and Pontius Pilate sent a bunch of Roman troops in, a bunch of Roman soldiers in, to kill these Galileans while they were making a sacrifice on the altar. Now think about that for a moment, right? It's a, it's a political insult, but it's more than that. It's also stirring up trouble for Pilate. Because remember, the temple is a place of holiness. It's a place where the Gentiles, i.e. Roman soldiers, are not supposed to even enter, let alone come in and murder people making sacrifices. Okay? So this is the current event, if you will, that's going on here. And it's being reported to Jesus. Why? Because Jesus has a lot of friends from Galilee. He's got a connection to these people. Right? And... This is related to Jesus, and it's related to him in a philosophical quest for what's going on here. Why, why would God allow this terrible thing to happen? And look at Jesus' answer in verse 2. He answered them, Do not think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way. No, I tell you. We'll stop there for a moment. No, I tell you. What Jesus is being confronted with, interestingly, is what philosophers and theologians call the problem of evil. Have you ever heard of this or read things on this? The problem of evil. Uh, plainly stated, why do good things or bad things happen to good people? Why do bad things happen to good people, right? Perhaps you've had conversations about that yourselves, as people seem to be inexplicably, inexplicably, bleh, can't talk today. Uh, taken from this world by death, right? It's been on my mind a lot lately with the, the death of Hans, right? Whose funeral's tomorrow. The topic here brought before Jesus is that one. And Jesus answers the first question, that is, do horrific events in the world happen to bad people? But not the second one. Why do horrific events happen to good people, right? So Jesus answers, no, it has no connection to their particular sin. 
But just like last week, where Jesus redirected the questioner, who was asking this philosophical question, last week the questioner asked, will many be saved? So this week, once again, he redirects the questioner to a more pressing question. Do you see the theme? Look at verse 3, but now look at the second half of the verse. No, I tell you, is the first part, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And then Jesus moves on to another story, this time about a tower that falls on people in Siloam. Look where Jesus goes next. He says, Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them. Do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. It's an interesting passage. And once again, we see our Lord Jesus laser-focused here. You see, evil is regrettable, and wicked men kill God's sons and daughters, kill lots of people, and nature, an illness, kills lots of people, and untimely, in untimely ways. But the whys of why that, that happens are not that important. The whys are not that important, which is, seems strange to us, right? It seems almost harsh. Right? But, but look, Jesus is putting our priorities in order with his response. Because according to our Lord, once again, the most important thing to think about here is your salvation and the message of salvation. Notice, your salvation is the way that he, that he structures both of his answers here. No, I tell you, verse 5, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. God calls his people here in Luke 13, and also the church, and you, whomever you are today, to get your priorities straight. Those philosophical questions, those theolo theological questions that we ask, are good. They're not bad questions to ask, but they're not as important as your salvation. Guess what's also not as important as your salvation? Current events. Current events. Think, think about these current events in Jesus' time, which were very much on the asker's mind, but think about your own mind right now. How many of you have been glued to the television or to your computer or your phone screens thinking about Ukraine, right? Yeah, it can dominate us. It can take over our minds. And we can ask all sorts of theoretical questions, strategic questions, questions about God's justice. Why would God allow these things? It can become all-consuming. But Jesus is saying, be wary of such distractions even though they're good-hearted. Be wary of such distractions, even though they're good-hearted. Don't, don't get distracted from your first priority as a Christian, your baptismal commitment to live a lifestyle of repentance, 
lest you perish. Then, as if to reassure the people that Jesus is talking to, he tells the story of the fig tree, which is also a warning, and yet it's also a revealing of God's heart for sinners. Once again, with that context, look at verse 6. And he told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, Look, for three years now I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it, why should it use up the ground? And he, that is the vine dresser, answered him, Sir, let it alone for a year also until I dig around it and put on manure. Then, if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. What Jesus is using this image for here today is multiple things. The fig tree is Israel, God's Old Testament people, but it's also the church, individual congregations, and it's you and me, individual people, individual Christians. It's all three of those. Trust me, I looked at lots of commentaries in the church fathers this week, and they all agree that one facet or another refers to all three here. But what's very clear is that the vineyard owner is God the Father. The vineyard owner, the planter, is God the Father. And the vine dresser is Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the advocate for sinners. How is this Israel? Well, the image of the fig tree being Israel is one that goes back to the Old Testament. It's one of the two images often used to describe Israel. In Jeremiah chapter 8, verse 13, in a declaration to Israel from the prophet, we read, I will take away their harvest, declares the Lord. There will be no grapes on the vine, there will be no figs on the tree, and their leaves will wither. What I have given them will be taken from them. So from the faithless, Israel, which St. Paul makes clear that both in the Old and New Testaments, it's faith that matters, it's belief that matters, from the faithless will be taken away the fruit. Later, in Jeremiah 24, figs are used in a prophecy again given to King Jehoiakim. Additionally, this fig tree is in a vineyard, which is another symbol for God's people. Recall this most famous Old Testament vineyard. As I read it, it'll probably, be, it'll probably ring a bell in your mind. It's from Isaiah chapter 5. The Lord is singing, Let me sing for my beloved, my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with very choice vines and built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done for it? This 
Isaiah 5 passage is actually the basis for what we read on Good Friday called the reproaches. The reproaches. Where we're reminded of the fact that God has done so much for us and yet we don't respond in love but with hate. Of course, the vineyard is also an image for the church and for you and me. Jesus will talk about the vine and the branches in John chapter 15. I'm sure you recall that passage. But with all this in mind, what does the parable of the fig tree say? What does it say? Well, number one, both the owner and the vine dresser, notice, are incredibly patient and long-suffering with the tree. That's the first thing. Both the owner and the vine dresser are patient and long-suffering regarding the fruitless tree. Look with our psalm that we sang today. It's in your insert. And look particularly at verse 8. Psalm 103. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy, long-suffering and of great goodness. He will not always chide us, neither will He keep His anger forever. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor rewarded us according to our wickedness. For as the heavens are high above the earth, so great is His mercy towards those who fear Him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has He set our sins from us. As a father pities his own children, so is the Lord merciful to those who fear Him. Do you see how that ties with the fig tree passage? Both the planter and the vine dresser are advocating for the tree, right? The vine dresser says, give us more time. It's been three years. It hasn't produced any fruit, but give me another year. I'll dig around it. I'll put manure around it. I'll personally tend to it and take care of it. And notice the planter, the God the Father, doesn't say, no, I'm done with it. He says, okay, okay, we'll wait. And he also, notice they also, both of them, are hopeful about the tree. Look, what, look, at, uh, the, look at verse 9. Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. To see, both of them are rooting for the tree to survive. Both are hopeful that it will. And this is how God sees His Old Testament people, the church, And you and I as Christians, God expects to lift, God expects rather, a life constantly changing for the better. And a life that's going to produce fruits of repentance. We don't have to guess what that means. Jesus is also referencing here a part earlier that we read in Luke. Do you remember way back in Advent, those of you that were here during the season of Advent before Christmas. Do you remember this passage from Luke chapter, eight, verse, Luke chapter 3, verse 8, that we read about John the Baptist? John the Baptist calls out and says, Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Those were John the Baptist's warning 
that we should bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And once again, here is that word, repentance. Turning away from ourselves and turning to Christ. Turning away from this world and turning to Christ. Turning to Christ and following His plan for our life. His desire for us. Now, you might be saying to yourself, well, that's well and good, but how do I do that? How do I turn away from myself and instead live for Christ? Well, of course, the first step is to embrace Christ and be baptized. But if you've already done that as a Christian, St. Paul's got an answer for you, which is found in our epistle. Look at the epistle reading on page 3 of your scripture insert. It's from 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Look at verse 6. Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. First of all, what's St. Paul talking about here? He's talking about what happened to God's Old Testament people in Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers, right? You can go back and read the first part of, that, of today's passage if you want to see the details on that. But look what he says. In order to lead a lifestyle of repentance, which produces fruit in accordance with repentance. Verse 7, Do not be idolaters, as some of them were. Where it is written, The people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Do not be idolaters. Now, I imagine most of you don't have idols in your closet at home or in your desk drawer that you, you know, pull out and pray to. That's Probably not something that goes on much anymore, although we are seeing more and more of that in our society, right? But you have idols. You have things that you put in front of God. You have things that you call coping mechanisms rather than turning to God. I have those things too. What's St. Paul saying? Put those things away. Do not be idolaters. Turn to me. Secondly, we continue, verse 8, we must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day, verse 8. St. Paul singles out sexual immorality here, reminding the church that sexual immorality is closely tied with idolatry. Why? Because it's worshiping the creature rather than creator. It's worshiping yourself specifically, rather than the Creator. Number three, not putting Christ to the test. Not putting Christ to the test. Verse 9 in 1 Corinthians, we, not, we must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. Now, those of you familiar with that Old Testament passage, what is this about? What is this about? This is about testing God and presuming on His grace. You might not have tomorrow to repent, friends. Did you ever think about that? You might not have tomorrow to repent. Don't presume upon God's grace now and think to yourself, ah, I'll confess this tomorrow. And finally, grumbling. Look, verse 10 nor grumbling, sometimes it's translated murmuring, 
as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the age has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. What's that saying? If you think you've got things mastered and handled, watch out. Watch out. And Lent is for you. <laughs> because you don't. Temptation and sin sneaks up on you. But the promise here is that you're not special in your sin. You're not alone in your sin. And God is not going to tempt you beyond your ability, as verse 13 says. But with temptation, he will also provide a way for escape that you may be able to endure it. Now look, obviously, this is not an exhaustive list of what it means to keep and bear fruit in accordance with repentance. But it is a good list to start with. You can see how these things apply to Israel, the church, and to yourselves. For in addition to yourselves, these temptations come at the church, right? Temptations of excusing sexual immorality. Temptations of becoming idolaters. Not seeking God first. Not seeking our first love. Temptations of putting God to the test. Temptations, and you've probably certainly seen this one in the church, of grumbling and murmuring. All these things throw us off the path. And Jesus warns us, as does the Apostle James, that faith without works is dead. Faith without works is dead. And so, as individuals and congregations, we must judge ourselves lest we be judged. Don't find out what it means to be cut down. Don't be the fig tree that bears no fruit and is plucked up. God's on your side, however. And the vine dresser himself seeks to aid your fruitfulness. All you have to do is repent and turn to him. Your spiritual disciplines, your almsgiving, your studying this Lent, your contrition, all of these are surrounded by God's grace. They're not things that you're doing by yourself. They're not self-help things. These are all things that Jesus helps us with. So don't cease to do good works, but also don't cease to ask for God's grace and help to do them. Let him purify your disorders affection, disordered affections, as the Collect says, for your heart will not be at rest until it's in him. And Jesus himself is your vine dresser, vine dresser. With Jesus as that vine dresser, as that tender of your soul, how can you not succeed? How can you not succeed? He will bring you to behold God's eternal glory. He will reshape you so that you can see his face. And whether you behold his face tomorrow or in many years, he is faithful. Amen.